Man, we have another new novel on the go, Graham. War God. We we do indeed. Yes, I seem to be um, I seem to be spreading spreading my wings and and uh, writing in two different genres at the moment because I've by no means given up uh, nonfiction and uh, and I am I am in the early stages of work on a on a sequel to my best known book which was called Fingerprints of the Gods about the possibility of a lost uh, civilization but uh, the novel writing. Uh, is, is 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 very close to to my heart. It and and as you rightly said in the introduction, uh, the the impetus for beginning to write fiction at all uh, came extraordinarily enough from visionary experiences with uh, with ayahuasca uh, in in Brazil. That's perhaps less unusual than it than it sounds because. But perhaps I don't know how many of your audience are familiar with with ayahuasca, which means the vine of souls, and uh, and and what it is. Um, but uh, it has influenced the work of many uh, artists working in the medium of painting uh, around the world. And uh, while I'm not a painter, and I'm really quite quite useless at at painting and drawing things. My my particular gift, such as it is, is in the is in the field of writing, and and I definitely received a a, a strong creative boost from from working with ayahuasca, and a whole a whole new line of of thinking opened up for me, and that resulted in in the first novel, Entangled, which was published in 2010. And uh, and now in in War God, and it occurs to me that some ideas are simply so extraordinary that they cannot uh, adequately be covered in the realm of non-fiction, where what you're presenting to your audience is uh, is facts, uh, and and that when you when you present a story as fact, there are certain conventions that you have to follow, uh, and particularly if your story is a controversial one, I found as the years went by and as academic uh, responses to my works of nonfiction grew more hostile because in the nonfiction realm, what I, was, what I was suggesting was that there could have been a lost civilization more than 12,000 years ago. And this is an idea that's very annoying to many archaeologists who are, con- who are convinced that civilization you know, is not more than 5,000 years old. It suggested that they'd got something wrong. Uh, and I, my, my nonfiction works were very controversial, I think it's fair to say, and, and came in for a lot of attacks and criticism. And this made me very defensive in my writing and made me bulletproof every argument and have large numbers, sometimes as many as 2,000 footnotes annexed to my increasingly lengthy non-fiction books so that uh, so that these attacks could be forestalled uh, and it's just an incredible freedom to be able to explore the extraordinary ideas that interest me in the realm of fiction uh, because then there is no there is no need to um, put up uh, a, a massively reinforced defensive argument one can simply go ahead and Say what one wants to say, uh, and there is no there, there is no no possibility of um, 
you know, furious critics attacking the book for being factually incorrect, since one is not pretending that it is factually correct. One is, one's posture in writing a novel is that this is a work of fiction, this is a work of fantasy. Uh, but what I've, but what I've found is that it's possible to put uh, a huge amount of factual information into the fiction, into the fictional context, and at the same time explore it in extraordinary and interesting ways. And this is why, uh, rather than writing a non-fiction book about the Spanish conquest of Mexico, I wrote War God, uh, which is a novel and and which uh, is also a work of fantasy, even though it is underpinned throughout by uh, facts of history, uh, because there there was an extraordinary uh, element that I wished to explore in this story, which really would have been quite impossible to explore in nonfiction, and, and that is um, the question of the spiritual forces that are at work uh, behind history. Uh, it, it, it is a simple fact that both uh, Hernán Cortés, who was the, the Spanish uh, conquistador, uh, who led the conquest of Mexico, and his uh, opponent Moctezuma, the emperor of the Aztecs, were both men who believed that they were in contact with supernatural forces. I mean, this is this is a historical fact, but it's um, a modern uh, critical academic would look at those beliefs of Cortes and Moctezuma and say that they were deluded. That they were, because of course, from the, the, the point of view of modern academic criticism, there are no such things as supernatural forces. But I wanted to consider the possibility that Moctezuma and Cortes were not deluded, uh, and that when they had their uh, encounters with specific uh, supernatural entities, there was a reality to those supernatural entities. And in the case of Moctezuma, that entity was the god who the Aztecs called Huitzilopochtli, which means hummingbird at the left hand of the sun. And he was the war god of the Aztecs. And uh, Moctezuma, and, and again, this is, this is his historical fact, uh, believed himself to be in daily communication with this entity, whatever this entity was. And those communications were facilitated by the consumption on Moctezuma's part of psilocybin mushrooms, which put him into a, a deep uh, visionary state. And in those trance states, he encountered this entity, this war god, who drove him on to acts of incredible violence and cruelty uh, and, and, and specifically a kind of almost serial killer delight in human, sac in human sacrifice, which was uh, a core uh, function of ritual in Aztec society. Uh, Aztec society was extremely bloodthirsty and, and human sacrifices were carried out in honor of the war god, sometimes on uh, an, an incredibly massive scale. There were, there were 40, uh, sorry, 80,000 people were sacrificed uh, at the inauguration. Yeah, I mean, it's just an unbelievable amount. The lines of sacrificial victims stretched stretched more than a mile to each of the four stairways of the Great Pyramid of Tenochtitlan. And um, uh, these uh, these victims were were being 
sacrificed to inaugurate that pyramid. This was some 30 or 40 years before the reign of Moctezuma uh, with a previous Aztec emperor who was also in touch with this entity uh, that they believed was their, their god of war. Um, on the other side, Hernan Cortes uh, was uh, in dreams uh, in contact with an entity that he believed was St. Peter. Uh, St. Peter had been the patron saint of Cortes since his childhood and um, played a key role in his life. And, and what I'm showing in, in War God is that these dream encounters with the entity that he construed as St. Peter uh, also led Cortes to commit acts of extraordinary wickedness and violence, which he believed he was doing or persuaded himself he was doing in the name of God. Um, in a way, just as bad as Moctezuma. Well, I, in in, a, in some in some ways, a great deal worse. This is this is the this is the intriguing thing. So, I mean, to give away a bit of the plot, and but also to to help listeners to understand why I decided to write this in fi as fiction, because it allows an incredibly rich exploration of the implications of these supernatural encounters. What I'm what I'm suggesting is that the the demonic entity that appeared to Moctezuma as the war god of the Aztecs in another disguise because these entities are shapeshifters appeared to Cortes as Saint Peter and uh, that the purpose of demons throughout human history has been to maximize uh, the misery of the human race uh, and to make things much darker and worse than they might otherwise be. And that's what we see in the events between 1519 and 1521 when the Spanish conquest of Mexico unfolded, that these two leaders, uh, driven into frenzies of cruelty by their supernatural visionary encounters with these, with these entities, multiplied and magnified human misery on an extraordinary scale. Uh, in the Valley of Mexico. And while things were terribly bad under the Aztecs, they ultimately became a thousand, a hundred thousand times worse under the Spanish. And it's just another of those facts of history that the population of Mexico declined from an estimated 30 million in 1519 on the eve of the conquest to less than 1 million uh, barely 40 years later after the Spanish had taken control. So a gigantic genocide took place in, in that area. Events of terrible darkness unfolded. And this is the stage, this is the frame in which I set the story of War God. And it is not a story of unremitting misery and, and horror because what redeems the story are the positive characters within it, both amongst amongst the Native Americans and amongst the Spaniards, and their capacity for love and courage and human decency uh, in a time of darkness. Graham, so the core historical framework was drawn from history and personal accounts, and perhaps you've fictionalized or recreated some of the motives or the characters. Is that just to bring the reader back to this episode in history to deliver the story? Yes, I mean writing writing novels is uh, is, is to a large extent uh, about character uh, and 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 also about plot. Now, now in this case, the essential the essential plot is is already provided by uh, history, uh, and it's a, and it's a plot uh, just so extraordinary that you literally 
couldn't make it up. I mean, what happened in those two years between 1519 and, and 1521 was on an, uh, on an, on an epic scale, and, and it involved the collision of two cultures, and it changed the face of the world. And, and what took place at that time was just literally incredible. Uh, so, so I'm able to, to, to draw from the historical events to give a plot that is very real and based on events that actually happened but, but that are yet uh, extraordinary. As to characters, there are many historical characters, true historical characters, who play key roles uh, in, my, in my story, such as Cortez himself, such as uh, Moctezuma, and such as an extraordinary woman called Malinal, uh, who is is a known historical figure? She actually be, she 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 actually became the mistress of uh, Cortez uh, in in Mexico. Um, but for some, she she is a Native American woman, and her origins are somewhat obscure. But the, her key characteristic, what made her, what allowed her to become important in history, is that she spoke uh, two languages. She spoke Maya. Uh, the language of the Yucatan Peninsula, where the ancient Mayan uh, civilization flourished, and 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 where indeed there are still Maya-speaking people today, and she also spoke Nahuatl, which was the language of the Aztecs, and Nahuatl is also uh, spoken, still spoken today. Malinal uh, spoke both of these languages, and for some reason, which history does not provide us with the answer to, but which I was able to, uh, as a novelist, I was able to uh, make it comprehensible to the to the reader why this was the case. For some for, for some reason, Malinal had a huge grudge against Moctezuma, the Aztec emperor. Um, and what, what, what we know of Malinal from from history that was that she was she was born into an aristocratic family, but that her uh, and her father was a was a minor king uh, of of uh, an outlying uh, group of people, not in the center of the Aztec Empire, but in an outlying area, and that she was um, she would have been the successor of that king, but the king died. And her, when, when Malinal was still a child, and Malinal's mother remarried another man and had a child, a male child, by him, and they decided to get rid of Malinal uh, so that that male child would, uh, would have the inheritance. And she was sold into slavery. Uh, this, is, this is historical fact. Um, well, in my, in my novel, um, I have her uh, effectively a, a, a sex slave for the Aztecs as a young woman, and then through a series of events prepared for human sacrifice. And this was very common in Aztec society. So we first encounter her in what are called the fattening pens um, in Tenochtitlan. Tenochtitlan was the capital of the Aztec Empire, and it stands on the site of what is now Mexico City. Um, in those days, in 1519, Tenochtitlan actually stood on an island uh, in the midst of a great lake called Lake Texcoco, and it was approached by causeways, sometimes as much as six miles long, crossing the waters of that of that lake. Today, of course, Mexico City has no lake. It's the whole lake has been drained, but this is the the location of Tenochtitlan. So we encounter Malinal in the fattening pen. This is where, again, this is another gruesome feature of Aztec society. 
that when people were to be sacrificed, they would first of all fatten them up uh, so that they would be in the Aztec concept, very strange, so that they would be desirable to the god uh, before they were led up the pyramid and their hearts were brutally cut out of their chests. Uh, and, and this is where we meet Malina waiting for her, waiting for her death, um, having fallen foul of the, of the high priest uh, who used her for sex, which was against his vows because the, the high priests of the Aztecs were supposed to be celibates. Um, this is the, the background to the plot. Do we know why they embarked on the human sacrifice as a civilization? Do we know why that... Was it due to one person kickstarting this all off? Well, I mean, if you look at their, their, as it were, the official accounts of the Aztecs as to as to why they were killing people on the execution stone, um, part of it is to do with a belief that the end of the world was imminent, um, and that in order to prevent the end of the world and specifically the death of the the death of the sun. Uh, with whom the war god Huitzilopochtli was intimately associated, uh, they would offer up the vital force of human hearts and blood to rejuvenate and uh, nourish and maintain the sun for another day or another year. Um, but if you go deeper, you find that, that, that there are constant references to these visionary encounters with entities who are urging the Aztecs to murder and kill in, in this way. Uh, and, and without those visionary encounters, it's difficult to imagine that they would ever have gone down this, this road. So, so th this, is, this is the reason for it, and this is why uh, I think it's a, it, it's, it's a very interesting story to, to tell. Um, if I could come back to the issue of, of Malinal, my, my, and she is one of the two heroines of my story. We meet her in the fattening pens with a, with, in the company of another young woman, a young, a young witch with supernatural powers which are not yet fully developed, called Tozi, who's also going to be sacrificed. And to cut a long story short, they, they escape uh, from, the, um, from the, sacrif the, the sacrificial predicament. And while Tozi stays in Tenochtitlan to work harm against Moctezuma, Malinal goes to the coast. And the reason she goes to the coast is because there was a belief at that time, and again, this is one of the mysterious aspects of the story that you just couldn't make up. Um, and it's very, very much a historical fact. There was a belief at that time that a god of peace called Quetzalcoatl, the feathered serpent, would be returning uh, to Mexico, having been driven out long before in some distant epoch by the forces uh, of evil and darkness, uh, that this god of peace, Quetzalcoatl, who was completely against human sacrifice, would be returning and that he would return in the year in the, in the Aztec calendar that was called One Reed. The Aztec calendar is rather like the Chinese calendar. I think everybody's familiar with the, the Chinese calendar and the fact that there are 12 named years, you know, the year of the rat, the year of the snake, the year of the tiger, and so on and so forth. Um, and and uh, it was very similar with the Aztec calendar, except it wasn't 12 named years, it was 52 named years, and they, they revolved in a great cycle. Uh, and in a year one read, not uh, specified in which cycle it would occur, there was a prophecy that the god Quetzalcoatl would return uh, to abolish human sacrifice 
and to overthrow a wicked king. It had just happened that at exactly uh, the, the, the time that the Spanish conquest began, it was the year one read. 1519 was the year one read. In a way, Quetzalcoatl came back, Graham. Well, in a way, in a way, he came back, but in a but in a terrible, dark, vengeful, violent form. And and I think if there's, you know, if there's anything that we in the modern age can learn from all of this, it is because there has been much talk, uh, there was much talk around the 21st of December 2012, uh, of a rebirth of human consciousness and of the return of Quetzalcoatl again. Uh, that we that we don't need to make the mistakes that our ancestors made, and we don't need to repeat the cycle of violence and wickedness that has been has been imposed upon the human race. Uh, but at any rate, Malinar went to the coast in hope that she would encounter this god of peace, and that she would be able to uh, work with him to bring about the end of this awful regime of human sacrifice. And, and the, the, lo and behold, when she, when she gets to the coast, and again, this is historical fact, she's, she's actually taken prison, prisoner by the Maya. Um, and this is at exactly the time that Cortez uh, arrives in Mexico with 490 men. And, and again, here you have, you have a scenario that, that it would be impossible to make up. The Aztecs have a standing army of 200,000 men. They are uh, an extraordinarily brutal mil militaristic power. They are like Hitler's Germany in Mexico uh, in the 16th century. They're a war machine. And on their coast arrive 11 ships containing 490 Spaniards. And at first, the odds seem absolutely insuperable. How can, how can such a tiny group of men possibly hope to overthrow uh, an empire on this scale? Incredibly brave, too, to be doing that, Graham. Yeah, I have to, I have to say that, that, that I have many reservations about the Spaniards. Um, they were extremely negative and cruel in many ways, but they were also men of their time. And we have to remember that in those times, in the 16th century, uh, ethics were completely different from, from ethics today. In those times, might was right. If you had the force, if you had the power, then you used it to take from others. And that was not considered to be wrong. It was just the way things, the way things were and the way they had been uh, for, a very, for a very long time. Uh, and, and, and I have to pay tribute to the astonishing courage uh, of, of these, this small group of Spaniards uh, who turn up on this hostile coast, not really knowing exactly what it is they're going to confront, but pretty soon finding out what it is. And they first of all uh, make contact with the Maya. They land on the island of Cozumel, a well-known holiday resort today. And uh, they, 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 they then sail round, round the thumb of the Yucatan and come down on, on the Tabasco River. And that's where Cortez has his first major uh, military encounter. And, and I show in the book that he's driven on to seek out this encounter by his visionary encounters with the entity that he construes as, as St. Peter, who is demonic. Uh, who is the same entity, in fact, that is misleading Moctezuma. 
Uh, and, and there Cortes confronts a gigantic Mayan army of at least 50,000 men. Um, and, you know, the odds seem absolutely insuperable. How could he, how could he possibly hope to win that battle? Uh, he has no allies whatsoever. There's just him and his 490 Spaniards. But they have a number of advantages. They have um, something quite incomprehensible to the indigenous people. They have dogs that are used as weapons of war. They have 100 wolfhounds and mastiffs with them. And these dogs are trained to kill. Uh, and they dress them up in armor. Uh, so they, they're huge, savage killer dogs, and they have a, they have a, a hundred of those dressed in, in shining armor of metal plate and chain mail. Um, and and there were dogs were known in Central America, but there was no dog larger than the Chihuahua. <laughs> bit of a difference there, Graham. <laughs> a bit of a difference, and and these dogs in Central America were used as food items. Uh, and they didn't have, they didn't even bark. Uh, so, so the only concept of the dog that was there in Central America was of this passive uh, food animal, the food item that about the the size of a chihuahua. Uh, so, in, initially, when they saw the Spanish war dogs, they had no idea what they were dealing with. They they thought they were some sort of dreadful supernatural being. They described them as dragons, actually. And then, secondly, the Spanish had another colossal advantage, and that was a small corps of cavalry. Uh, horses had been extinct in the, in the New World for more than 12,000 years when Cortes turned up. There had been horses in the Americas, but they went extinct at the end of the last Ice Age about 12,000 years ago, so there was no memory whatsoever of horses or what horses were. Uh, the Spanish had with them 16 heavy horse, 16 um, destriers, these these massive horses that were that were used for cavalry charges, and again, the horses as well as the men were armoured uh, in steel. Uh, so you have to picture this this huge huge horse, uh, which is covered in in gleaming steel, and on its back is mounted a warrior with steel with a steel sword, dressed in steel armour. And in the eyes of the Maya who first encountered this cavalry, they just had absolutely no idea what they were dealing with. They could not place it in any frame of reference. They understood that the horses looked somewhat like deer, um, and, and the men were mounted upon their backs. Now, were the men sitting on the deer, or was this some, some kind of extraordinary supernatural hybrid, hybrid creature that they were encountering, which was like a centaur, which was part you know, part deer. Anthropomorphic. And, and, uh, uh, exactly, and, and part man. They, they, just, they just weren't sure. And then the speed of these things, that they come charging down at you in a, in a close-knit group at about 30 miles an hour with their hooves thundering on the ground and making, and making the earth tremble and mounted upon them these, these, these warriors with lances, uh, again, steel-tipped, steel-tipped lances. This was just a shocking terrifying sight to the Maya and they had no tactics to deal with it. European armies had been uh, dealing with cavalry charges, European infantry had been dealing with cavalry charges for you know thousands of years and they had developed very specific tactics to deal with cavalry charges. The Maya had no such tactics, they were thrown into utter disarray 
And then the third thing that gave the Spanish, uh, another thing that gave the Spanish an advantage was the possession of guns. Um, and these guns were of two types. They had a very primitive musket called the arquebus. Uh, took about a minute to reload and fire uh, each shot with that. They had about 50 of those with them. And they had cannon, a number of small cannon called falconets, uh, and a number of larger cannon called lombards. Uh, these also were totally unknown weapons in the Americas. They had never seen anything like a firearm, but they did have traditions of the gods having a weapon that were called fire serpents, uh, which dismembered and destroyed men and made loud noises and emitted clouds of smoke, uh, which was exactly what the guns did. So in every way, this Spanish force looked like a supernatural force to those who first, who first met them. Uh, and as a result, in that first big battle at Potonchan, uh, Cortes was able, it wasn't easy, the Maya were not cowards, even though they were confronting this, this most unusual and, and terrifying spectacle. Mm -hmm. uh, the Maya put up a, a, a massive fight, and for a while it looked as though Cortes' infantry would be destroyed, but then he came into the battle uh, from from behind with his cavalry and and at the same time the war gods were the, the war dogs were unleashed and uh, suddenly the whole Mayan force collapsed into a into a rout uh, and you have to imagine cannon firing grape shot whistling amongst their ranks these huge cannonballs from the Lombards bouncing along destroying 100 200 men at a time just an absolutely shattering experience and and in the end Cortez carried the day and he would they, sorry, yeah, Graham, they, they really believed in the science and, that they had didn't they that's what that's what drove them they really believed in their military might and their science the, and the spaniards did believe in their military science um they and they were this is the other difference between them and the forces they faced in in central america is that for them uh, warfare was a science and they had they had carefully thought out tactics and these were these were all hardened men uh, spain you have to remember had just gone through 700 years of conflict with um, with Islam. Uh, Spain had been had been occupied by Arab forces, large parts of Spain, and and there took place a, a campaign called the Reconquista, where the Spanish gradually reconquered their their territory from Arab occupation. And this had ended. The final battle of the Reconquista was not long before the conquest of Mexico. So these men were hardened in warfare. They'd also had experience of war in Italy, in the Italian wars. And um, so, the, so they were a they were a hardened, formidable force who knew exactly what they were doing and who did not break or panic easily, uh, and who counted upon one another and who counted upon their skills and their tactics. And, and whose whole objective in warfare was to utterly destroy the enemy on the battlefield with just ruthless, single-minded focus. Whereas both for the Maya and the Aztecs, a battle was a place to take prisoners uh, who would then be carried off and at a later date sacrificed. So their tactics in warfare were, were actually not really to kill the enemy on the battlefield, but to disable the enemy and take them prisoner. And this cost them dear when they came up against the ruthless killing machine uh, of the of the Spaniards, who had no such um, ideas at all, who were just there to utterly wipe them out. And uh, and that's what they and that's what they did. So we have this giant battle at Potonchan, and then Cortez um, accepts the surrender of the Mayan chiefs, 
And this is where he encounters Malinal, the, the heroine who I spoke of earlier, because she'd been taken prisoner by the Maya on her way down to the coast, pursuing the dream of meeting the god of peace, Quetzalcoatl. And uh, 20 women were handed over by the Maya to Cortez to serve as um, cooks and, and servants and, and bed companions. And one of them was this woman, Malinal. And, and uh, this is where she injects herself into history. Because she's the key to this whole saga. Really. She's, the key, she's the key to the whole saga because without her, uh, it is very unlikely that Cortes would have succeeded in conquering the Aztecs. She gave Cortes key information which he needed, and she played a very key role. And this is recognized uh, to this day uh, in Mexico, where the name of Malinal, who's the heroine of my story, in Mexico today, Malinal is regarded as a traitor. Uh, if you uh, call somebody a Malinchist in Mexico, it's, a, it's the equivalent to a calling them a, a, a traitor uh, because she was considered to have handed over her land and people uh, to the invaders. And um, she, has a, she has a bad reputation in Mexico today, which I hope my story will go some way towards rehabilitating because she was, she was an extraordinary, and I, I, I hope so, she was an extraordinary and remarkable character. At any rate, sorry, I have to give the background to this. It's a little bit, it's a little bit lengthy, but uh, bear with me. When Cortez first landed in, in the Yucatan, he had an extraordinary, where, where everybody spoke the Mayan language, he had an extraordinary stroke of luck, which was that a Spaniard had been shipwrecked there some 11 years before. And that Spaniard had been one of a group of 26, uh, 25 of whom were eaten, sacrificed and eaten by the Maya. Uh, because cannibalism was practiced throughout this region. But one, uh, whose name was uh, Aguilar, uh, was kept alive uh, in a rather humiliating role serving a Mayan chief. And this uh, Aguilar had been amongst the Maya for 11 years and thus spoke fluent Maya as well as Spanish. And when Cortez heard that there was somebody who looked a bit like him held prisoner in one of the Mayan villages, he went and grabbed this guy. And uh, Aguilar became Cortez's first interpreter. And in all his encounters with the Maya, uh, Aguilar did the, the key role of interpreting. And this was very important because Cortez was an incredibly cunning and clever man. And he used language, he used speech, he used the power of persuasion very effectively to secure his dominance. So having a good interpreter was really important to him. But after he dealt with the Maya and accepted their surrender and received these 20 women, amongst them Malinal, as, his, um, uh, as a gift from the Maya, he moved on down the coast. He'd heard by then rumors of the detailed rumors of the Aztecs, and they had something he wanted. The Aztecs had gold. It, it was gold that drove the Spanish conquest of Mexico more than anything else. And, and here's just one of those funny things. The Maya were not that interested in gold. The Maya liked jade. Jade was very important to them. For the Spanish, they just saw it as some kind of green stone that had no attraction to them. And they were a bit disappointed at the limited amounts of gold they managed to extract from the Maya after defeating them. But uh, there were these rumors of this huge empire which was rich in gold, and Cortes decided to go on and uh, take that empire on. So he sailed on down the coast, and he came to the first town that was part of the Aztec Empire. 
and uh, he landed there and found himself in a position where he couldn't speak to them because suddenly his interpreter, who spoke Maya, didn't speak a word of Nahuatl, the Aztec language. And they were getting along very badly with sign language and, and gestures when the woman Malinal, uh, who was carrying um, pots at that point and working in the kitchens, um, put herself forward and made it clear that she spoke both Maya and Nahuatl. And Cortes immediately grasped what this meant, that he could now speak to the Aztecs. He would give his words to Aguilar, the Spanish shipwreck. Aguilar would put them into the Mayan language to Malinal. Malinal would then translate them into Nahuatl so that the Aztecs could understand them. And the reverse process would occur. So with these two interpreters, Cortes could suddenly speak to the Aztecs. And again, this is a historical fact. Very quickly, uh, Malinal uh, learned the Spanish language. And it was possible for her to dispense with Aguilar within a few months. She didn't need him anymore as an intermediary. She could speak Spanish directly to Cortes and serve as his effectively as his tongue. And in every image now that we see of Cortes, and many have survived from the Aztec time because the Aztecs made a lot of paintings, in every image of him that has survived, we see Malinal standing by his side, and we see the glyph for speech coming out of her mouth. And, and she becomes his confidant, uh, his interpreter, and his lover. And she also becomes his advisor. Uh, and this is where she gives him the key information that he's going to need in order to defeat Moctezuma. And that is the story of Quetzalcoatl, of the returning deity. Uh, and by some mystical process, by some extraordinary coincidence, Cortes and his army have turned up in the year one read when Quetzalcoatl was expected to return. And moreover, they look like Quetzalcoatl because there were these traditions amongst the Aztecs that Quetzalcoatl had, had been a white-skinned, bearded deity armed with formidable weapons who would come, who would return from across the seas in a boat that moved by itself without paddles. And Cortes and the Spanish, with their sailing ships, just perfectly fitted the bill. Uh, and and Malinal's advice to Cortes was that he should not pretend to be Quetzalcoatl. He should always say what he was, but he should leave it to the imaginations of the Aztecs to fill in the gaps. They would think he was Quetzalcoatl, whatever he said, because they regarded their gods as tricksters. Uh, and and this is what happened for the in, in the initial part of the encounter. Moctezuma was convinced that he was dealing with this returning deity. And Cortez, of course, was massively opposed to human sacrifice. Uh, and this was, again, what was expected of Quetzalcoatl, that he would be opposed to human sacrifice. The old legend said that he was a god who, who put his fingers in his ears at any talk of human sacrifice and who had ruled that people should only sacrifice flowers and never human hearts and blood. So, so Cortes, even though he was a warrior and a killer, and there's a famous um, song by Neil Young actually called Cortes the Killer, which, which um, you know, fits the bill perfectly because he was a, a, a ruthless, awesome predator. Um, he nevertheless was able to don this mantle of Quetzalcoatl and Moctezuma, who'd been carrying out horrific uh, human sacrifices at his own hands, 
began to feel that he fit that he himself Moctezuma fitted the bill of the prophecy as the wicked king who would be overthrown by Quetzalcoatl and he felt somehow that his own wickedness was what explained the incredible cruelty and ferocity of the of the Spaniards and it took it took Moctezuma and the Aztecs quite a long time to figure out for sure that they weren't actually dealing with gods at all they were dealing with men just like them, but, but formidably armed and, and dangerous men. Uh, the, the impetus for beginning to write fiction at all uh, came extraordinarily enough from visionary experiences with, uh, with ayahuasca uh, in, in Brazil. That's perhaps less unusual than it, than it sounds because but perhaps I don't know how many of your audience are familiar with with ayahuasca, which means the vine of souls and uh, and and what it is. Um, but uh, it has influenced the work of many uh, artists working in the medium of painting uh, around the world. And uh, while I'm not a painter, and I'm really quite quite useless at at painting and drawing things. My my particular gift, such as it is, is in the is in the field of writing, and and I definitely received a a, a strong creative boost from from working with ayahuasca, and a whole a whole new line of of thinking opened up for me, and that resulted in in the first novel. Uh, and, and tag for a lot of attacks and criticism, and this made me very defensive in my writing and made me bulletproof every argument and have large numbers, sometimes as many as 2,000 footnotes annexed to my increasingly lengthy nonfiction books so that, uh, so that these attacks could be forestalled. Uh, and it's just an incredible freedom to be able to explore the extraordinary ideas that interest me in the realm of fiction, uh, because then there is no there is no need to um, put up uh, a, a massively reinforced defensive argument. One can simply go ahead and say what one wants to say, uh, and there is no there, there is no no possibility of. Um, you know, furious critics attacking the book for being factually incorrect, since one is not pretending that it is factually correct. One is one's posture in writing a novel is that this is a work of fiction, this is a work of fantasy. Uh, but what I've but what I've found is that it's possible to put uh, a huge amount of factual information into the fiction into the fictional context, and at the same time explore it in extraordinary and interesting ways. And this is why, uh, rather than writing a non-fiction book about the Spanish conquest of Mexico, I wrote War God, uh, which is a novel and, and which uh, is also a work of fantasy, even though it is underpinned throughout by uh, facts of history. Uh, because there, there was an extraordinary uh, element that I wish to explore in this story, which really would have been quite impossible to explore in nonfiction, and, and that is um, the question of the spiritual forces that are at work uh, behind history. Uh, it is it, a it, simple fact that both uh, Hernan Cortez, who was the, the Spanish conquistador uh, who led the conquest of Mexico, 
and his uh, opponent, Moctezuma, the emperor of the Aztecs, were both men who believed that they were in contact with supernatural forces. We have another new novel on the go, Graeme, War God. We we do indeed. Yes, I seem to be um, I seem to be spreading spreading my wings and and uh, writing in two different genres at the moment because I've by no means given up uh, nonfiction and uh, and I am I am in the early stages of work on a on a sequel to my best known book, which was called Fingerprints of the Gods, about the possibility of a lost. Uh, civilization, but uh, the novel writing uh, is, is 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 very close to to my heart. It, it and and as you rightly said in the introduction, *Angled*, which was published in 2010, and uh, and now in in *War God*. And it occurs to me that some ideas are simply so extraordinary that they cannot uh, adequately be covered in the realm of non-fiction where what you're presenting to your audience is uh, is facts uh and and that when you when you present a story as fact there are certain conventions that you have to follow uh and particularly if your story is a controversial one i found as the years went by and as academic uh responses to my works of non-fiction grew more hostile because in the non-fiction realm what i was what I was suggesting was that there could have been a lost civilization more than 12,000 years ago. And this is an idea that's very annoying to many archaeologists who are, con- who are convinced that civilization, you know, is not more than 5,000 years old. It suggested that they'd got something wrong. Uh, and I, my, my nonfiction works were very controversial, I think it's fair to say, and, and came in 